Great to see you here. Dare we say spring is in the air? It is Montreal. Uh, my pleasure to be here with you this morning and to be um, uh, sharing God's word with you. For those of you who might not know me, my name is uh, Basil Thavis, um, and I am an elder here at Westview Bible Church and also a member of the preaching team. For those of you who have been following us over the last few weeks, you're going to know that we're in a series. The series is called you know, Being in the World But Not of the World. As part of that series, what I would like to present and what God has really placed in my heart is I would like to focus on the idea of we as God's people are called to be a light in darkness. We're going to do that this morning by looking at the ministry of Jesus. What I've done is I've collected a few stories from different parts of the New Testament, and I've placed them all in the context of a day, morning, noon, afternoon, and a supper. And what I want us to do is to look at Jesus as the light of the world, and in the very natural and ordinary parts of life, how that light just smashed into this world that we know. Dramatically, amazingly, and an upturning of everything that we know. Hopefully this approach will help us to be able to relate it also to our own lives. So what I've done this morning is I've titled the sermon, A Day in the Life of Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, because in many ways, this is really foundational about being light in the world. It comes directly from Jesus speaking in the Sermon of the Mount. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Jesus is speaking. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The term, the light of the world, um, has been used in many different ways, actually, in the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament and in rabbinical teaching, the light of the world often referred to God, it could refer, in some cases, it referred to Adam, even. And it even referred to, in some cases, Israel, the nation Israel. But if you were to read biblical commentary on the New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus Christ, is supremely the light of the world. What this means is, is that when we ask Christ in our lives, and Christ has come into our life, when we've invited him into our life, we, the Christian, and collectively all of us together as the church are called to be a light to this world. It's something we hear about in Sunday school, we hear it through different songs, but I really want us to look at this profoundly this morning. What does it mean to be a light in the world? When this scripture says that where light is to shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, that is the key. 
that we glorify the Father. And the good deeds that are spoken about in this verse are not good deeds that come out of us. They're the good deeds that come out of the spring and the wellspring of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. They are the evidence of the life of Christ in us. So we're going to start by just taking some scriptures from different parts of scripture and looking at Jesus in different parts of his day. And the first scripture that I want to look at is a scripture that might give us an indication of how Jesus would start his day. We're going to go to Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 38. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So this scripture is really interesting. Jesus, early in the morning, goes away to a solitary place. His disciples, actually, we have the impression of them being almost a little bit frantic, looking for him. Where is he gone? What is he doing? They were really concerned. And, you know, biblical commentary even says here that the disciples probably felt that he was discarding important opportunities in Capernaum. Where are you, Jesus? We have things to do, places to go, people to see. But what Jesus had done is he had withdrawn to be in communion with his father. And when he came down and met them with all the agenda that they had that day, after being in communion with the father, he said, let us go to this other village, being led by the spirit of God, not by men. This is a call for us, if we are to be the light of the world, dear friends, and brothers and sisters, we are called to have moments in our day where we center ourselves with God. If Jesus, the Son of God, withdrew to have communion with his Father, how much more are we called to center ourselves in our day, times of our day where we are centered with God? Because in our day, it's not us it's not Basil that's the light of the world. It's not Mike that's the light of the world. It's not, it's not any of us who are the light of the world. It's not Evange. It's not Claire. It's not Kathy. It is Christ who is the light of the world. We are called to have moments of centering. Moments where we ask God to go before us as a light into darkness. Connecting with God. Intimacy with God. And moments in our day, in some ways, moments where there's almost a bit of a slowing down. You know, I personally, I'm a very present-oriented person. That's just the way I am. And I'll get into work, and, 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 and I'll, I'll, have, I'll just I'll hit the ground running. And I can easily fall prey to something that actually Oswald Chambers says. We fall prey to this, you know, having to do a thousand and one different activities in our day. But we are called have moments in our day where we're centered. 
God is calling us to have those moments. For me, there's a, a devotional that I use by Oswald Chambers. There's an examined prayer of St. Ignatius. And these things center. They center us. They order. They center. This can be at any time. doesn't have to be in the morning. But we need moments in our day where we're centering with God. And before you go into important meetings or important discussions, take a moment to center that discussion before the Lord. We need to have moments in our day, the scripture is telling us, where we center the light of Christ in our lives. And we are sure that it's Christ that is the light. If we look at another part of scripture, and this other part of scripture, we have now Jesus journeying again as part of a day. He's journeying through the morning. He's journeying through the morning. And he arrives thirsty at a well at about noon. And we're going to pick up the scripture in John chapter 4, verses 4 to 10. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sashar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The scripture goes on, I won't show it all here, but the scripture goes on, and Jesus has a penetrating discernment of this woman's life. And it turns out that she has had five husbands. Biblical commentary will tell you that rabbinical law at that time absolutely um, did not allow anyone to have more than three husbands. So this woman was a Samaritan. She was a woman, and she was a woman despised by her community. So where is the story? Jesus, in his day, naturally, has finished the journey. He's tired. He's thirsty. And the disciples have gone away looking for food. And there's something here that's kind of really interesting and I think already important Disciples are gone. There are some conversations that we're going to have that are only going to happen if distractions are eliminated. They're only going to happen if distractions are eliminated. And when Jesus, what does he do? He comes to this well, and he asks for help. Jesus asks her for a drink. He asks her for a drink. Biblical commentary will tell you here that the Samaritan woman would have recognized Jesus as a Jew by the form of speech that he had. He, of course, knew that she was Samaritan because he was in Samaria. 
He also knew, that, of course, that she was a woman. And something very, very curious about this woman, which was almost like a, there was a triple, triple, three layers here that had to be penetrated with God's light. She's there at noon. She's there at noon because she's rejected by her community. And she can't go to this well at the same time as others. What does Jesus do? He asks her for a drink. You know, there are times when God is calling us to have conversations with people and just being present, God is already breaking through barriers. Just by asking for help, without amazing wisdom or amazing spiritual arguments, Jesus and the light of who Jesus is, is busting through barriers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in, a, in an amazing book called Life Together, says, you know, that we feel often as Christian people that we have to have just the right word and just the right response and just the right perfect answer when in fact the most powerful gift that we can give to people is to listen and actually tell people by listening that they have a voice. So this is an interesting thing. I have shared this, but maybe not recently. But when I was growing up, um, you know, my mom and my dad, like, I know they loved me. I never had any doubt about their love for me. But there was a lot of tension between mom and dad when I was growing up, a lot of tension. And I remember, as a young person, just going to the supper table, and it just didn't feel like my stuff was really important enough. I just felt it myself. Like there's so much other stuff going here, so much other thing, many other things going on here. You know, what I just have to share about my day just didn't, to me, just didn't feel that important. So I've actually, today, and I recognize in this in myself, and maybe some of you as well, is that, you know, to be listened to is deeply ministers to me. And also to have had that sense that, you know, we're called, all of us, every one of us here, we're called deeply to have a voice. That was my experience. And, 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 and so what happens is, is that Jesus, in just this act, the light of Christ, his light is penetrating barriers. Her life at the well, is defined by biases and limitations. And there is something here which you could call in, in biblical commentary like a triple prejudice. Samaritan, woman, rejected by your community. And what Jesus does is he says, you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. You are seen, you are heard, and that is his message to each of us here. It is the message to me and is the way that God has told me that I have a voice, that I'm seen, that I'm heard, and that I'm loved. And it's the same message to each of us here. As, God, as Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, the light of Christ is, is busting through layers of darkness. Samaritan, this limitation, this bias, this prejudice, busted by the light of Christ. 
a woman and the limitations that society have put on you because of that, busted here by the light of Christ. And finally, even the very rejection that you have had, the love that I have for you goes beyond all these things. Layers upon layers are being removed. So when we think of the light, our first thought might be, you know, light. I mean, I'm a scientist. I'll shine a light here. Light reflects off a surface. God's light never reflects off a surface. God's light, and please allow the Spirit to work this deeply into you. God's light, God's light penetrates to the core of the person. God's light penetrates to the core of Basil. And as God's light penetrates to the core of who I am, and I see God's love, he is calling me to be involved in seeing that light penetrate, not just on the surface, but to the core of others. You are loved. Your God desires to restore you. God promised her, and Jesus in the scripture promises her, spiritual life. He talks about a water. He talks about a wellspring of life. This is spiritual life, and it is a direct, direct quote and and reference to the Holy Spirit. God gives her a life, spiritual life, water from which you would never have to thirst, and he offers her a restoration, a spiritual restoration But in the case of this woman, you can be sure that this also involved an emotional and psychological restoration as well from what she had gone through. If we go on in the day of Jesus from another part of Scripture, in another part of Scripture we see another very important part of the ministry of life of Jesus, and that was his healing. And it takes place all again very naturally in the course of the day. There is nothing here that is a scripted event. So we go to John and pick up the story in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 15. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am the world, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah, Lord. Jesus, as the scripture continues, The story goes that you know, many of you know very well, Jesus heals this man. This is the healing at the pool of Siloam. But also, as the scripture continues, very quickly, there is a major argument that starts. And this major argument starts with the Pharisees. Two major problems about this healing. First, it's on the Sabbath, And secondly, this is a man blind from birth. Nobody gets healed when they're blind from birth. And we're going to see how God's light penetrates into this darkness. 
This scripture, initially, what does it tell us about Jesus being the light of the world? First of all, there is a metaphor in this scripture that is inescapable. And that is, the one who couldn't see, who was blind, actually ends up seeing. And the ones who could see are actually ending up showing that they are blind. So that is also a light-darkness aspect. In fact, we are all blind until the light of God's love touches us. The other aspect in that scripture that is very important is Jesus is saying this healing is to show the works of God. And the scripture said, and the works of God in us are to be displayed to the world. This is an amazing scripture. Because what it means, if you think of it, we are God's works. I mean, sometimes it's easier to think about this in terms of like someone who might be an artist and they paint painting. Someone, people here, there are people, many people who are writers and you write a beautiful piece. It is a work. Maybe you've choreographed dance. That's a work. Whatever it is that God has called us to do, okay, we are involved in works, but we are actually God's work. We are the works of God, and it is the work of God in us that is meant to be the light to this world. When Jesus heals the blind man here, he is giving him a spiritual life as he gave spiritual life to the woman at the well. But there is also a physical healing. And it is again an idea that when God's light penetrates us, it is a restoration, a spiritually found, a sp- founded on a spiritual foundation, but there is a restoration that is physical, mental, emotional. And he is there to restore the whole person. God and Jesus and the light of Jesus and the light of Christ in us and what we are called to see in this world, Christ is about making something beautiful from brokenness and from pain. In the story of the blind man, there's another aspect of light and darkness and being the light of the world that we need to see. And that is, is that as soon as this blind man is seen, he is assigned blame, even by the disciples. They blame him. Who sinned? This man or his parents? We are very quick to assign blame to things that we don't understand or to things that maybe we're fearful about. Jesus immediately, with the light of Christ, that blame, that's darkness. Jesus dispels it with his light, and he says, no, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Immediately after, there's this whole argument with the Pharisees. This is another aspect of light and darkness that is incredibly important for us to understand. But this happened on the Sabbath. But this man was blind from birth. And finally, the Pharisees end up saying, well, This couldn't be the man that was blind from birth. This didn't actually happen. Biblical commentary says this amazing, amazing act of mercy became irrelevant to the Pharisees around him. 
They ended up disbelieving the man's own words and Jesus' power to heal. This is teaching us something else about being the light of Christ. We often talk about being the light of Christ, and our idea is we're going to go out of here and be the light of Christ you know, in the world around us, which we need to do and which we need to be. But God is calling us to be the light of Christ right in our religious institutions. God is calling us to also see the blind spots that we have as churches and to allow the light of Christ to speak into that. The light of Christ is also meant to penetrate the blind and the legalistic spaces of our religious institutions. On Friday, just Friday past, in a historic announcement, historic announcement, indigenous people from Canada had gone to the Vatican and Pope Francis issued an abject apology for what has happened to the indigenous people in Canada. Though we know that more than 150,000 indigenous children were forced to attend residential schools between the 1880s and right up to 1996. This is pretty recent, folks. This really was actually a form of organized cultural genocide of the indigenous people. Pope Francis, who's part of the Catholic Church, issued an apology, but there were Protestant denominations that were also involved in this. And if any of you have been following some of the things, if you've been looking, there's enough, whether you're Protestant, Evangelical, Catholic, we need to be aware of the light of Christ in our own churches as well as in the world that is around us. God's light shines into our churches and reveals our blind spots. And Pope Francis, it is only a very, very first step. But in doing this, and through the indigenous people of Canada, we see light. The beginning of light. And the beginning of light is the beginning of a healing process. The last story that I want to talk about as we continue through the day of Jesus In a very natural way, Jesus, as he would live his day, he would often end up just having supper with the people around him. In the particular scripture I want to share with you now, and the last scripture I'll be sharing from this morning, Simon, a Pharisee, invites Jesus to his home for a banquet, probably after being at the synagogue. So they're at the banquet, Jesus is reclined, he's relaxing. Simon the Pharisee respects Jesus, sees him as a teacher, but all of a sudden, this uninvited woman bursts in, into the banquet, and she displays an outpouring of worship at the feet of Jesus. So we'll pick up the story in Luke chapter 7, verses 44 to 48. When the Pharisee who had invited him, Simon, When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, the woman who had come in, he said to himself, if this man Jesus were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. So she was actually a prostitute. That she is a sinner. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, 
said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She met my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is an amazing scripture. There's an invited woman who is in such a state of emotion at being forgiven that she just crashes this party. She doesn't even care what people think. She's completely in a state of emotion. She is canceled by Simon. She's not seen as a person. She's seen as a problem. Now Simon, you know, Simon had some respect for Jesus here. He was not discourteous. But Jesus rebukes him. Why did he rebuke him? I mean, Simon had not been discourteous. He had performed, performed the duties of hospitality. But Simon had not gone out of his way to give Jesus a special welcome. This woman, she saw the true state of her humanity. Simon did not. Her depth of love was an indication of the depth of forgiveness that she had received. So there's another principle here about the light of God that is so important. The light of God involves the intertwining of love and forgiveness. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon had some love for Jesus, but it only really went so far. This woman allowed the light of Christ to penetrate her fully. And as we allow the forgiveness of God to penetrate us fully, the love of Christ is able to be more fully expressed Love is the proof of the reception of forgiveness. Jesus says here, your sins are forgiven. If you read biblical commentary here, that is not when her sins were forgiven. He is just confirming the forgiveness. Her display of love is because she's already been forgiven. Something's happened before. And Simon, really, he's kind of like us. He kind of allows the light of God to go only so far. Jesus, pretty good teacher. I mean, I'm impressed. I kind of like him. I'm inviting him to my house. He allows the light of God. We allow the light of God to go so far. And what he does by doing that is he's limiting. He's forgiven for everything, but he's putting a barrier to God's own forgiveness in his own life. And scripture is telling us 
that to the depth, and when we've allowed that depth of forgiveness to come to the core of who we are, God's love flows beautifully out of that. So these scriptures that I've collated today into a form of a day, they were taking at different parts of scripture, but different parts of the day show us that we are called to be the light of this world. And it is Christ in us who is called to be the light of the world. There is an overturning. Okay? We're not just light. It's not just light reflecting on a surface. It is an overturning of this world. Jesus demonstrated to us what the light of the world actually looks like throughout his day in natural, even ordinary activities. And again, that love was never a scripted event. Jesus went out in the morning to be in communion with the Father. The light of Christ requires moments of centering. At noon, tired and thirsty, he met the woman at the well, and he shows us that God's light is a deep love to the core of the person. During his day, he comes across a blind man, and he heals him. And along with the woman of the well, it shows us that God's light involves spiritual renewal, but also emotional, mental, and physical restoration. We are works of God for his glory that shine a light into our world and also into the blind spots of our own churches. And finally, during a supper meal, Jesus has taught us that God's light involves the intertwining of forgiveness and love. And I'll just finish with this thought, everyone. If you, and as Christians, you'll know this. When the light of Christ calls us to forgive or to be forgiven, how many of you have had this experience? I have, there is nothing else in which you will see the love of God rush in in almost a nanosecond. It is almost immediate. This is the strength and the intertwining. And the light of Christ is an intertwining also of love and forgiveness. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, my friends. God bless. And let's thank you. Let's just go to prayer. Lord, I thank you for each and every one here. Oh, God, we love you. We thank you. We pray, oh, God, that you would be with each and every one here. I pray your blessing on each home. Help us, oh, Lord, as we navigate our lives, as we, as we transition to coming back to church, as, we, as all the things, Lord, as we're trying to, to see you in our world. Lord, I pray for each one. I pray for each light that you have here. I pray for those who might not know you. And I pray, oh God, that they would give your lives to you, Lord, to be a light in this world. Lord, we just pray that your spirit would work on each of us. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, you care, us, care for us. You've given us a voice. You've listened to us. You've healed us. And you have made something beautiful from brokenness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.